Uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Speaking of Teaching. This With us as usual, my co-hosts, Rachel Lowe-Diener and Meg Locker. Hello. With us... Hi, Ian Matthews. How are you today? Hello. I'm doing well. With us as unusual is no one else. <laughs> Roy counts. Roy. <laughs> He's new here. <laughs> On the back end is Roy. Hi, Roy. There's <laughs> no one else. So this episode, a little bit different. We are going to uh, have a little bit of a show and tell on the most recent thinking articles research in distance learning and teaching online and what have you. So I'll go first if that's okay. Go ahead. All right. What I've got is on remote proctoring. Obviously a big topic during the pandemic. People trying to ensure their test integrity, um, eliminate cheating as much as possible. And kind of the backlash that began... um, really during the pandemic and has grown pretty significantly as it's gone on um, into the fall semester, into the summer and fall. So what I have to kick us off is a Twitter thread from Corey Doctorow from, uh, what website is he from? Nobody's bailing me out. Mm-mm. Oh, mm-hmm. You're on your own. Oh, Give it a gook. <laughs> Give it a gook. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter that much, but he had a, t- a Twitter thread, a thread that referenced a study on the effects of remote proctoring, and I'll, I'll read some highlights. It is, as Twitter tends to be, inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. But um, raises some valid issues, I think. So he starts it and says, Before COVID, remote proctoring tools were a niche product, invasive tools that spied on students who needed to take high-stakes tests. Wow. <laughs> right? But couldn't get to campus or to a satellite test-taking room. But the lockdown meant that all students found themselves in this position. Dot, dot, dot. Um, he says, he goes on, this could have prompted educators to reconsider the use of high stakes tests. After all, high stakes testing has well understood limitations in pedagogy and uh, organizes education around a highly artificial ritual, completely unlike the rest of scholarly and industrial life. He references, um, the workplace kind of how we don't have to replicate those skills of test taking and and immediate recall Mm -hmm. of rote facts. Um, He goes on, while in the academy, neither scholars nor researchers work without collaboration or access to references. It's not clear what exactly a high-stakes test measures, apart from your ability to engage in the useless, non-transferable skill of sitting a high-stakes test. But rather than rethinking assessment, educational institutions doubled down on remote proctoring, throwing stupendous sums at companies that made outrageous promises about their ability to automatically detect cheating with AI. He references the paper at that point and raises some studies or some some anecdotes rather of four students. Um, the the paper introduces them as Jazzy, a first generation student and caretaker who was flagged for suspicious noise by the software recording her take an exam in her family's home, who emptied her bank account to pay for on campus housing. Ashley a student who dissolved into tears, quote unquote, when a remote proctor with access to her computer kept moving her cursor, distracting her and exacerbating her anxiety about her performance. Audrey, a transgender student at the Georgia Institute of Technology, who was humiliated when a remote proctor demanded their professor to confirm Audrey's identity. Oddly, syntactical sentence. Um, when a remote proctor demanded their professor to confirm Audrey's identity thanks to a photo ID that didn't match their gender presentation. Mm, wow. Um, Tracy, an OSU grad with ADHD who could only use, quote, half her brain on her remotely proctored exam, using the other half to police the minor fidgeting that is a side effect of her condition. And finally, um, Ahmed, an Arab-American law school graduate, estimated that he tried 75 times to get the remote proctoring software he would be required to use on the bar exam to recognize his face. It never did. Oh. Sad story. And anecdotal, obviously. 
anecdotes are not evidence, but these are real experiences that students are having and are intersecting with issues that are at the forefront of, of our thinking in higher ed of equity, inclusion, accessibility. So let's discuss what do you think about remote proctoring? Well, this is an interesting question for us because we typically don't use it. Uh, <laughs> being English and all, we um, we have we have our students write. You sure. know, they're they're writing these ideas and they're developing full things as opposed to you know snippets of information that they need to be tested on. Um, personally, I've never used remote proctoring. I don't know if you have rage. No, I never have. In fact, um, I have in my literature classes over the years moved to doing some tests, usually um, kind of short answer, open book, um, but often I've administered those tests in class. Um, and faced with the pandemic, I just kind of moved farther away from that kind of high stakes testing experience and mm -hmm. just, you know, would give my students these questions that, you know, you can't cram for. <laughs> right. It's more formative, right? Like right. They're, they're thinking questions. Yes. Right. Thinking questions. But, you know, it's interesting. We that last example of the student taking the bar exam, I understand um, that some exams like that, like the bar and presumably um, something like the MCAT sure. maybe or the LSATs, it's hard to give that up. Um, it does seem um, it's difficult to understand that in, you know, especially a, a 100 or 200 level class that it, it would have to be this kind of high test, high stakes testing situation where students would have to be proctored. But we did have that. I mean, that was an issue when the pandemic started. Um, I remember in some of the DLIT meetings, people were asking about proctoring and how do they do that if they can't go to the library because the library is now closed? And so how do they proctor from home? And is that guaranteed that it's that student you know they have to have their ids or whatever. so i remember like there we st we use it people on the campus use it and mm -hmm. i think there are specific disciplines that um, need to use it sure so how do how are they doing it they're proctoring <laughs> they're using remote proctoring and i mean even outside of these i don't even want to call these extreme anecdotes because they're they're real situations and yeah. they're not that out there they're not that big of outliers but if you think about students that don't have a computer that need to use a chromebook until the middle of the winter semester there wasn't a way to use respondents on a chromebook so yeah. they were I what do you do that. find find your kid's computer I, we had students emailing us like what do i do mm -hmm. and we said i don't know yes. <laughs> find a computer yes so they yes. got check out ones at the library so i mean equity issues abound with this. I also think it's interesting that um, when we're talking about equity and teaching online, in one sense, it opens a lot of doors, right? For students who are very busy, um, who maybe are like in multi-generational homes and taking care of people, or they, they're they not on a bus line, or they don't have a car, um, it opens the door for education for these types of students. At the same time, we can't just assume that 
online teaching is an equitable thing sure. inherently, right? Yeah. We know it's laced with bias and everything else that a normal classroom is. So it's interesting that something like remote proctoring, I've lost my train of thought. Well, that's okay. No, I think it makes sense. Where was it, I going with this? It. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll try to pick this ball up. It puts the lie to a lot of assumptions that we have, I think, about online learning as like a universal good is only helpful to people mm -hmm. and to things like AI where, oh, it's it's the computer, it's impartial, it's not gonna have any bias. When it, we've seen time and time again with like facial recognition and policing and all that kind of stuff, it has a lot of racial biases mm -hmm. um, just based on who's programming, programming. it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a chance to re rethink those kind of assumptions and, and rebuild the culture a little bit that I don't know that we've taken to its fullest. Mm -hmm. Right. It's still, as you say, it was very niche beforehand. I had heard of it mm -hmm. before the pandemic, but um, now when everybody was clamoring for it, it's still this technology that is untested isn't quite the right word right because it goes through testing before it's put to market but for widespread use um and in in like real world situations right our learners are not just people who are not on campus right they're in homes where there will be noise right sure. or um they they have technological problems mm -hmm right or um they have learning differences or they're neurodivergent and it just doesn't fit neatly into these programs i'm just always skeptical when we are requiring our students to use additional technology on top of sort of what we're already using right it's just you um, enter this realm where it's kind of like, fingers crossed, <laughs> hope it's going to work. Right. Right. And a test-taking situation is already high stress. Mm -hmm. I mean, just imagining that student trying to do the facial recognition software 75 times. Mm -hmm. Oh, my heart breaks. And you know, that's not the, you know, it, it didn't just happen once. Right. I love that point that our online students aren't just not here. They're still placed somewhere. And we need to take that into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would like to, maybe um, if there's anyone out there that uses proctoring, call us. <laughs> we want to interview you. Yeah. Like, I would Leave love a to voice talk message. to you. Yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Email Ian Matthews. <laughs> um, CC.edu. Yeah, but like, how are they using those tests? Um, what kind of information are they testing? How does that fit into their CLOs and their assessments and learning outcomes and all that stuff like that? I'm really curious about that now. I never really thought about it because I never really had to. Right. Or if yeah. you tried it and, and found a workaround in some other way, I'm curious to know about that too. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, I mean, the whole idea of proctoring is to lessen cheating, right? right. Is that the whole, that's the whole purpose. There's nothing else beyond that. Because I yeah, think, like, I mean, cheating's a pretty broad umbrella. Right. From, like, <laughs> is it you who's taking, is it actually yes. the student who's taking right. the test? Is the student looking at a book or notes or using a calculator right. when they're not supposed to or a dictionary? Because 
sometimes I feel like there will be cheating of some kind in some way, even with proctoring, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, even with proctoring, like if you search for remote proctoring, the autocompletes are like how to still cheat on a remote. Yes, right. exactly. Right. All exactly. Over the place. And like that's something we have to deal with, obviously, in the yeah, English class. It absolutely is. Uh, well, is. yeah, I wonder about that. If we could take the conversation in that direction, how as a former English teacher myself, how what has been your experience with plagiarism maybe during COVID? Has it been more or has it been mm, different? Good question. Um, I wouldn't say mine's changed at all. Um, you would think even in just the number of extra courses you're teaching from a distance, that would up that number. Um, but I have not had any plagiarism issues minus one that I can think of over the year. The, the only, I think maybe I had one or two, and the primary plagiarism issue that I see, you know, and it's usually one or two a year, it will be a student who finds a way to recycle previously written work. Um, and I just, you know, it it doesn't matter, if, you know, how, how many different ways that I articulate this isn't, you know, you actually have to write a paper for this class. Um, it doesn't always sink in, but I don't think that's unique to being in a distant situation. Sure. Right. Um, there are certainly students in a face-to-face -face situation who appear to be working on something who really aren't, you know, who are going to fall back on something that they've done previously. Um, and that happens online as well. Um, I think I, and I know you do this, Meg, and I'm sure all of our colleagues try to do it, you know, with the checking in and the smaller the assignment, smaller assignments and kind of seeing where your students are along the way um, does prevent some level of especially you know going to these essay generating websites or where people buy their paper mm -hmm. but I, d I haven't really seen that that's the easy cheating though like what about uh, who's writing this paper you know his yeah. his said student's mom back there typing right. away and then submitting it because and that happens too and yeah and we're never gonna, gonna happen. know right. we're never gonna know and at a certain level right and this is a question that applies to everyone who's using this technology is how, how much does it matter sure right um i i i'm guessing like for an lsat or mcat or whatever the the bar right we really want to know <laughs> Um, that this this person knows their stuff. Certainly, like um, our colleague Jennifer Gable talking about their nursing nursing students. We want our nursing students to be able to put in a catheter, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, at the and I want my students to be able to write clearly. But if they're going to go to the extent of having somebody else do their work and they don't feel that need to actually develop their own skills i i don't think there's anything i can do about it mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. right i mean it's uh you know like when my son paid my daughter to do his driver's ed homework <laughs> <laughs> he either would have done that or it just would have right. not been done right yeah right, right. feel that 
while he ends the thread, maybe some more opportunity for discussion here. Um, Barrett ends well, that's the author of the study. Um, recommendations for use of remote proctoring software, colon, don't, period. <laughs> um, instead, she sets out a, a lot of alternatives to high-stakes testing, including long papers graded at multiple stages, short response papers, and presentations with a peer critique component. If you must use timed remote exams, change parameters to make gaming harder, allow open books, randomize question orders, and encourage collaboration. Um, I would add, I won't add that. I'm going to cut it off. If you need to hire more TAs to help grade these more pedagogically useful assessments, I imagine some would take issue with that descriptor. Look to the savings from ditching remote proctoring tools. Um, above all, don't normalize this. This was a mistake, something that compounded the pain of the lockdown. This is the moment to reassess our approach to reverse the alarming trend of increasing commercial surveillance of our students, taking it in a little bit of a cyberpunky direction. So I don't necessarily agree with all of this. I'll say I think we'll just hire more TAs. Yeah. With that forehead. Yeah. Okay. It's... Wait, we get TAs? Right. Hey, I don't have one. <laughs> My TA has not been grading those papers. <laughs> the pile is this big. Right. Is that why I'm getting so many emails for non-graded work? Right. Wow. I mean, yeah, That those recommendations assume um, probably much lower class size than we're seeing, right, and more resources. And, you know, if you're teaching a 5-5, which most people are here at our college, to, to move away from, say, a Scantron or a, an exam that, you know, where you can just easily score it to a longer, um, more comprehensive thing puts a lot more burden on the instructor. Um, so I could see a lot of people feeling uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly there's there's multiple conversations kind of colliding here with the proctoring and then also how much can we adopt authentic assessment strategies? Why do people not want to do that? Um, and that gets into different design of questions on those yeah. multiple choice and high, higher stakes assessments more than the proctoring discussion. But mm -hmm, sure. a lot of things that people are attached to for one reason or another that are kind of conflated in this Twitter thread. But I, worth talking about. I think you're right. It is worth talking about it. And like the river runs deep. <laughs> I mean, also it gets to this notion of surveilling our students and um, just, you know, with all of the discourse in the news about students returning to campus, um, it, there there's a lot of surveilling going on, right? Whether you're having to do these daily health checks or I saw, I think it was maybe over at Oakland University, students were, um, they were wanting students to wear like almost a button on their shirt that I don't know if it was getting their temperature or what it was doing, but some sort of health, um, you know, beacon. <laughs> and, you know, that's getting pretty, it, it's getting pretty personal, right? And, um, we we probably should be having more conversations. And when I say we, I don't mean just the three of us speaking of teaching hosts, but, <laughs> you know, across the country, more conversations about surveilling and invasions of um, personal privacy and what that means, right? Yeah. I, I, I always, you know, make jokes like, 
I mean, the government can come in and take a look at what I'm doing because it's going to be pretty boring. But at the same time, right, uh, we've all had that experience of, remember, uh, Meg, you said you were like silently eating your dinner and then on Facebook came up an ad for like the Borson cheese that was on your plate. Right, we all have that feeling like Big Brother's watching. I didn't even say boars and cheese out loud. I just took it out of my fridge and made a little charcuterie plate with it. And then I was scrolling through Instagram and there was a boars and cheese ad, which I have never seen on Instagram before. And I freaked out. And so of course I'm texting Rachel. <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> and then you, you said it in text, now you get some more. I didn't email it to anyone, I, nothing. Like it was bizarre, but yes, this oh. brings up a really great, and I already feel like, um, Zoom is encroaching enough. Right. I have seen things well, I should not see. I know students feel uncomfortable sometimes. Right. Um, we have all these discussions about should you require your camera on or shouldn't you? Yeah. Um, and there's arguments both way, but we're already literally in students' homes or in their cars or right. wherever they happen to be Zooming from. And so... Um, adding more layers onto that and, and more ways in which we survey them is problematic. Right, there is. A little there's, scary. There's something, even though we talk about sort of like the personal connection of being in a classroom, right? There is something that is less personal, personal and um, kind of equalizing when you enter a classroom, right? We're all seated in the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. We all have the same kind of like the, the noise level or the room tone, right? <laughs> yes. Is the same. Um, if we hear a, a boom outside, everyone hears that boom, right? But when we're all in our different homes. Yes. Um, and that's not to say that the classroom is absolutely an equalizing opportunity for everyone. We know it's not, but um, at least everyone being together changes some of, um, I guess, limits some of the variables. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting, Ian. Thank, Thank you. you. I have a couple of follow-ups. Yeah, do it. Both about Oakland University. Oh, yes. I have a one of my undergrad classmates. Um, works or worked in their library department. Um, it, their little beacon was called the bio button, which tracks your skin temperature, respiratory rate, and heart rate at rest, which combines your vital sign information with your daily screening answers to indicate if you are cleared for regular activities or at risk for a COVID-19 infection. Um, so you wow. wear it attached, attached with adhesive to the upper left chest and can be worn for approximately 30 days. Oakland University also is the one that a few years ago, um, 2018, it looks like, passed out hockey pucks to throw at active shooters. Oh, gosh, I remember <laughs> that. Oi, oi, oi. Oakland. That's, I mean, <laughs> wowzers. We have all, only love for our colleagues around the state. But. But I'm just, I'm so curious, like, I mean, it, what if you worked out or you had a dance party, right? Yeah. Then your vital signs. Mm-hmm. Or I guess they were... What if you're hoofing it up the stairs, man? I mean... Right. Gosh. Yeah. No matter how many times I do those stairs, my vitals are through the roof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a lot of information about individuals. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Wow. Yeah. And then if that's attached to the student, then it's attached to their student number, their financial records, their academic records. Right. Right. Warning. And a lot of students get health insurance through their universities. Right. And so is that going to like drive up their prices if their heart rate is abnormal? Or? Right. Right. With a lot of health insurance plans, if you get a Fitbit, you get a lower rate because you get the data sent to them. Oh. Yeah, but then they know how many steps you take every day. And exactly. then you're embarrassed when it's right. like 219 yeah. steps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we go on to the next yes. article? Yes. All right. Uh, so the one that I have here is from the Community College Journal of Research and Practice. And it's called, What Do We Know About Online Course Taking, Persistence, Transfer, and Degree Completion Among Community College Students? Um, and this was published in 2020, I believe. Um, and what I thought was interesting was that it spent a lot of time talking about elements of online teaching. I'm just going to say online because we know the vocabulary for this is all over the place. Um, elements of online teaching that have r much to do with the design of the course itself. Um, and I find this very interesting, one, because I love course design. Um, I, I like to think about it on the weekends. Ooh. <laughs> uh, and in fact, like every semester I redesign my online courses, it's neurotic. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but I, I really love, and being involved with Quality Matters, I've learned to, to see how um, course design really does set your students up for success. And without it, it's like this wasteland and lots of things can go wrong. So there's this part I wanted to read to you all um, that talks about the culprits for student withdrawal or student attrition. Um, and, and these are the four it lists. Technical difficulties social distance, so like that feeling of alienation and non-community, uh, lack of structure, lack of uh, student supports. Um, and then it says uh, course quality certainly matters. Prior research found that course design and social presence were both crucial factors in determining students' perceptions of and relatedly their success within online courses. So those two pieces, uh, course design, so how your course looks, how easy it is to navigate. We're not talking about um, like what assignments you're using. We're talking about like where they're placed and how you get to them. So course design and then social presence. And this article talks about social presence as um, ways to create interaction between student and students and student and instructor. Um, those two things are very, very closely tied to retention, success, completion, transfer, all of those things that we want to see from our community college students. Um, so I thought we could talk a little bit about that, um, what course design sort of means to us, how we view it, how we work on it maybe. Um, and then also I think social interaction has been something that we've talked about with all our guests so far. like. How are you engaging your students? Yeah. What, you know, we just bashed on discussion boards with Jen. Um, like, so what are you doing? Like, how do you connect your students to each other? How do you create the sense of community that we know um, fosters retention and gives students a feeling of meaning within their classes? Um, 
those are two things I'm always interested in. Um, and I thought we could have a discussion of those. Oh, I like both of those. Um, I, I like um, this idea of course design, right? Where you can find what. And I know myself over the years, I just keep working on, um, I'm, that I'm not exactly sure if there's a technical word, but it's bringing everything to the surface, mm. right? So not superficial, not that I'm teaching on a surface level, but I want my students to look at, say, like the skin of my Blackboard course and see everything that they need so that it's intuitive. Mm -hmm. And that the fewer clicks yes. to get to what they need, the better. And then also that everything is kind of linked together, right? And from the announcements to the weekly folders to the assignments tab, everything is interconnected. So there's multiple ways to get to anything that's below that surface, yes. that's below the skin. And I picture it as sort of like a, a spider web. Like they can walk down this trail, but then they can take a left here and then they can go this way. And they'll, they'll find the place they need to go probably through multiple avenues. Yes. I like that. Yes, yes. That nothing should be hidden. Mm -hmm. um, what about you, Ian? The idea of things being hidden. I was just reading an article in the Chronicle today where a faculty member wrote in and said, and this is something I've heard from other faculty as well, that well, students today just want to know exactly what they need to do and be able to find everything. And it's like, why? <laughs> Wait, that was a bad want? thing? <laughs> exactly. Right, like, right. What? <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I spent a good <laughs> five or ten minutes baffled by what they were even saying because it's like, you're right. Why wouldn't you want your expectations to be clear? Why wouldn't you want your students to be able to navigate your course? I think it's it's possible to get into a little bit of trouble. Students can get in the weeds if you have too many links to the same thing. Mm -hmm. But having everything, what is the word for it? Forefronted, foregrounded, mm -hmm. all the important elements, easily navigable, um, obviously so important. And setting expectations for how students should expect to participate in the course. I think something that came up in my graduate studies in poetry oh. is a, a good poem teaches the reader how to read it. Yes. The same for a good online course, I think, should teach the student how to take it first lovely. and foremost. Yeah, that is um, love poetic, if you yeah. will. So the course should teach, teach the students how to take it from how you link to things or how you write in your in your discussion posts or in your content items in the course mm -hmm. um, and all that ties back to not necessarily the instructional design but the the web design and the accessibility of the course right if you if you're thinking about course design as part of your teaching then you are going to use it to teach your students yeah. so you will have like a start here button yep. and that will take them to their first folder and that folder will sort of like open up these assignments and possibilities um, and I think that's really great like Rachel what you were saying about you you want them to make the fewest clicks um, I love that and I think that can be carried across some like it should be minimalist in a way like the the fewest folders 
the fewest assignments, the fewest clicks, the fewest things they have to access, the fewest pieces of software they're going to need to complete the course. Um, it, it really does, I think, focus the student mm. um, and then they're ready for that content, right? They, they can't even get to the content <laughs> until after they learn how to use these things, these systems, so. You know, um, there's little crossover with the art. I found this article from Chronicle of Higher Education called How to Prepare for the Next Phase of Hybrid Teaching. It was published on July 12th of 2021. And one of the things um, they touted was to encourage a less is more philosophy about curriculum planning and development for online and hybrid courses. Mm -hmm. And so by paring things down, we make it more accessible for our students and we're able to go deeper as instructors. Mm -hmm. And it really, I think it really almost calls an instructor's bluff. Like you, we all know the things we do in the classroom, right? And we have these like really great activities for face-to-face -face learning. And we have all these ways that we engage students. And when you go online, um, you have to cut a lot of that. Yeah. Um, you can sort of cut through that chaff, right? Um, and I think that's a really good thing as far as sort of re-envisioning your course. And then when students say like, I want to know what I have to do, how long it's going to take and how to do it, right? Like that's what we should be delivering in an online course. That's like, I want them to do those same exact things. Like you should enter my course and know exactly what you have to do and when Mm -hmm. And then like how this will help fulfill these learning objectives. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you just said about how long this should take. Mm. That's a question that I've had over the years, right? Especially about some of the shorter assignments, like in the English department, we have our students do these inform this information literacy toolkit. And students will often ask, how long should this take me? And I do think that that kind of a guide does help students um, manage their expectations. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I, you know, we, we were all students and I remember sitting there thinking like, I took a lot of online classes and I'm like, Oh, I've got to do this worksheet. I'll just pump it out before class. And then like <laughs> an hour later and I'm only on question two, I'm like, well, I can't finish it now. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I would have known before I started. And yeah. I think it's a really important part of learning objectives. Um, if students are going to meet these certain things, we have to sort of Give them a guideline for time. Yeah. I think that only sets them up for success. I think you're right. That's cool. Also, I love like the like the really artsy, pretty side of course design, like mm -hmm. the images yep. and the organization. And like, I feel like an interior designer when I get in there and I'm like, yes, <laughs> I have all these <laughs> great images and they weave together and like students know by this image that they are in this place. And I'm hoping to like reinforce this thing with whatever it is I'm using. So like, I think even things like color and image and font can be a part of teaching students how to learn an online oh. course. We do have to keep accessibility in mind, of course. Yes. With all that. Yes. And that's easy. Meg, I know that you know all this. For our, <laughs> listeners, for our listeners. Do it, Ian. Go for it. Just, it can be easy to think, oh, I'll just make this. Or I'll say, click on the blue thing if you're right. in this group. Or click sure. on the red thing. Oh, I'm colorblind. What yeah. do I do? And it, it's, I mean, it's tongue in cheek, but it happens. And 
it saves you, the instructor, the email later from the student who was like, hey, I can't see these colors. What do I do? Yes. Um, it's, it, I, f I feel like it's easy to think, oh, all these rules about accessibility and all this stuff is putting me in a box and it sucks. It's all this work I have to do. But really, it saves a lot of work on, on your part and Absolutely. only helps the students. Right. right. All students. Right. right. Yeah. I always use the cliche uh, that the rising tide lifts all the ships of the students. That's like, a good cliche. That's good. <laughs> it's acceptable in this instance. <laughs> um, like if a student wants to have the captions on for videos, even if they're not hard of hearing, um, or they have a hard time navigating sites, yep. like they just need a little bit more structure. Um, it's easy to get in the weeds with the design. It is fun. Like back to the MySpace page design. <laughs> <laughs> like geo make your course into your GeoCities page. Yes. <laughs> Accessibility is an issue. And again, equity becomes an issue. Like what images are you choosing on your Blackboard course, right? Is it always an image of a white hand typing on a keyboard? Because when you put in hand typing on keyboard, it's gonna be a white hand. Right. So like, I, I love um, when we were facilitating OHCC last summer mm -hmm. and like 150 faculty went through it because of the pandemic. Um, I had a lot of those faculty experimenting with image and that was always the comment I gave. Like, this is, I love that you're experimenting with image here, you've got it captioned which is perfect for accessibility but also think about this yeah like the images absolutely. you choose are coming from your point of view and you're no matter what you choose you're always neglecting someone some group some person so like i think right you have to think about what do all of my students look like mm -hmm. and how can those students see themselves in, in my the course, course. Mm -hmm. absolutely especially in a situation where they're not necessarily seeing each other because it's an online course they're not looking at one another mm -hmm. how can they feel like I am represented here. Exactly. And that often requires more than one click in the, in Pixabay or whatever open access photo thing you're yep. looking at, right? Yep. You have to s scroll down sometimes. Yeah, or you have to be very explicit about what you search. Mm -hmm. You know, like black hand typing on keyboard or woman in wheelchair doing this. Yep. You know, like you, we have to understand that the, <laughs> The society is set up for the majority uh, and that doesn't work for our students. So yeah, I don't mean to talk about um, like getting all cutesy in the course as an easy thing to do. I think there are a lot of very valid concerns when doing so. Right, and it's time consuming. Yes. Right? This is something yes. that I think we have to honor across the board, right? Is that if you wanna do this well, it's going to take a long time, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's why, um, especially, you know, the the people um, who we were coaching last summer who were taking OHCC for the first time, it's so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It is. Yes. Um, and, you know, we've, we've all said it before, you know, we've been doing this for 10 or more years and our courses are still evolving. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's not gonna be perfect the first time around. I wanted to go back to the um, other point that your article brought up about the student interaction. Yes. Um, and that I um, found this study in my article from Chronicle of Higher Ed and it talked about a survey 
um, that was executed by um, a nonprofit called EduCause, and their aim is to improve higher ed through IT. And they um, collected data from students in the fall of 2020, um, and their data showed that students were reporting meaningful experiences across all learning environments, so whether it was online, hybrid, or face-to-face. But their most positive experiences depended more on the number of opportunities for student and instructor interaction than on the type of learning environment itself. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't whether it was online or virtual or hybrid, face-to-face, whatever, but it was the interactions they were having. Um, So it was how instructors and students organized and spent class time and the amount of feedback and direct interaction mattered more than the use of technology. Yes, yes. And I think um, the quality of those interactions is super important. So like if you are just asking students to post their take on a discussion board and reply, that works for some things. But as we've discussed, there are different approaches to using the discussion board and some are better than others. But also like instead of that, um, what I like to do is I like to think of my students as like the teachers before they get to me. Mm -hmm. So I will use students to help each other through areas about which I know they're going to struggle. I'm like, oh, you are all gonna struggle with this thesis exercise. So how can I use students to help each other before they get to me? And then it's like, it's instantly quality, right? Because then they're like, oh, this is great. You're actually really gonna give me some helpful feedback because I don't wanna turn in this crappy sentence. You know, like I wanna do better and you're here to help me do that. And so, I, I like when um, I like when students get to sort of own it, even if they don't know it. I mean, oftentimes my students will be like, I don't know how to peer review. I can't even peer review my own paper. And I'm like, that's okay. We'll work through it. Like, yeah. you have a guide. It'll be great. Um, and then they learn so much about themselves and get to help each other. Yeah. I mean, especially in an exclusively online course where they're not interacting like in breakout rooms on Zoom. I like the discussion board for sharing their experience with whatever it is. Like, um, you know, as we're dipping our toe into academic research and using the research databases, they'll share like which database has been most useful for them and, and how they're using it. Or they'll talk about Um, their feelings about doing research and what their experiences in the past were like and what they're hoping for this time. Or they'll offer these different um, ideas that they have for their papers and other students will come in to give feedback on those. Right, right. right. You're like taking away the opportunity for a canned response. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They can't just say, this is my interpretation of this text and someone else can come say the same thing. They have to actually draw that out of themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A discussion board that has a right answer. (laughs) That's not a good discussion. That's not a discussion board, right? (laughs) If you want someone to do that, have them, you know, submit a homework assignment just to you. Or a quick quiz or something. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I think it goes back to kind of combines with that idea of design of how how do we design in opportunities for those interactions beyond just here's the discussion board for this week. Um, uh, and there's so many tools to do that. Flipgrid mm-hmm. we've talked oh, about yeah. on this very podcast. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so many others. VoiceThread. Yeah. Those the, are the two easy ones. <laughs> absolutely. And I mean, Zoom breakout rooms, That yeah. that's difficult if you're um, teaching asynchronously, but... 
I really like this Zoom breakout room. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, for that reason, right? Whether it's you meeting with a smaller group of students or students working with one another, there's just so many options. I heard a great idea about breakout rooms. The instructor made a shared Google Slides presentation and gave mm -hmm. each breakout room their own slide so Ooh. they could follow along with them taking their notes without having to go into each individual breakout room. And then you know when they're kind of wrapping up, they've answered all the questions on the yeah. thing. Oh. It, that was a great idea. That's fabulous. That's that really was like cool. Inside Higher Ed or maybe in the Chronicle. <laughs> yeah, I was wow. like, wow. Agusta. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then sort of, especially if that's work that could then be shared, mm -hmm. right? And that, that could actually happen in an asynchronous um, classroom as well, yes. right? Yes, Ooh. I like that a lot. So here's to, to wrap up this discussion, um, here's one thing to consider, and this is probably going to set some people's hair alight. Um, but uh, this other study I looked at was comparing online to face-to-face -face teaching, and they did it with like 185 students um, taking this College 101 course. Um, and no, there was no statistical significance <laughs> in the difference between students' perceptions of face-to-face -face and online. And they went through different things like um, the social interactions, blah, 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 all these things. Uh, they found that both courses came out like pretty much even. And they said they thought the reason for this was because that College 101 course um, was sort of standardized by the people who taught it. So it had a curriculum that was set. Now our courses have that to some extent, right? right? We have the same course learning outcomes um, and we have some like general parameters for the outline of the course and what's to be taught. But then beyond that, there's just interpretation land, right? Yep. So this was saying uh, when you control for those things and you have a set curriculum for the week and you do that online and you do it face to face, um, which means you have the time to design your course and to plan the types of interactions that students will have, then there's the online and the face-to-face -face courses are generally thought of in similar ways by students. And I thought that was really interesting because what does that say about like the variety of teaching styles that we have now? You know, like if, if you do that sort of curriculum, you lose a lot of that freedom for your faculty. Yeah. But then what you end up gaining is probably much more cohesive learning experiences across the campus. That is true. I mean, you know, the the idea of a course shell, right? Masterclass. Yeah, masterclass is <laughs> really, you know, makes my Lock stomach royal. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, sort of, if we could, I hate the word standardize, but you know, like standardize some of the best teaching practices, right? So, you know, when you think about the, the personal touch that students are getting in the classroom situation, that can be replicated in an asynchronous online, mm -hmm. you know, to, to allow your students to get to know you, yes. right? And people do it to different degrees, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, it's a win when you can have online students say they feel like they know you. Yes. Right? Yes. 
Um, that creates and, that sense of community. Yeah, looking. yeah, and 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 we should all be going for that, right? Yes. That's really interesting. I know. For sharing that. I'm not gonna say either way. I'm just saying that that's what they said. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can email Ian Matthews if you have any questions about that's master right. courses. <laughs> Don't. Yeah. Tell him what you think. <laughs> Right. You've already sort of dived into your article yeah, a few times. I did, but I'm going to return. I had a, I had a backup right. and we haven't talked about that yet. And so this is um, also from Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, it was published on June 21st of this year. And the title is why we need to rethink digital reading. Oh, very timely. Right. And, um, you know, publishers and School administrators alike have really been putting the emphasis on digital texts. So whether they are these OERs, which are free, or the low-cost digital texts, um, there, there's a lot uh, that seems really great about them, right? The cost, um, the accessibility, like that our students could just open their laptop or, I mean, sometimes even on their phones, although that's less common. Um, environmentally, certainly, it's a better thing. I try to think about that as well. Um, and often there's kind of resistance, especially from like old school English professors. And I feel like I... I fall into that camp, right? Because I love books. I love having books and smelling them and holding them, right? And it seems to a lot of us that, that that's the way people should read. Um, and so James Lang, who wrote this article, he highlighted uh, two books that are um, out right now that are worth a read, or he asserts are are worth a read. The first is called How We Read Now, Strategic Choices for Print, Screen, and Audio. It was published in March by Oxford University Press, and the author's name is Naomi Barron. Um, and he also suggests a book entitled Skim, Dive, a Surface, Teaching Digital Reading by Janae Cohen. Um, and that was just published in June from West Virginia University Press. And so there's really two things going on with these book selections. The first, the uh, book by Naomi Barron, uh, is looking at um, physical and digital texts and the different ways that students interact with them. Um, and then Skim Dive Surface by Janae Cohen is making an argument that um, reading in an interactive an engaged way, um, a digital text is different than engaging with a physical text. And our students need to know how to do that because it's just not the same and it doesn't lead to the same outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Naomi. Old school English professors were right all along. Yeah, we were. <laughs> we were. So, um, this Naomi Barron is an emerita professor of linguistics at American University um, and has been doing this research for several decades. And her um, conclusions were clear when it comes to the kind of focused reading that we ask students to complete in service of understanding and remembering course content 
print has a substantial advantage over all other options. Mm. So like cost notwithstanding, right? That if we want students to learn from the book, whether it's longer narratives, textbooks, what have you, um, print has a substantial advantage. Um, they go on to say, finding seems to be especially true for longer texts and for narrative-based reading. And so this is something that actually um, really hits home for me because I've been working with Lori Deby to um, put together a LibGuide for my English 278 class. And I have the color purple, the novel, on there, right? So because our library ha happens to own a digital copy, so my students will have the opportunity to read the e-book. And I like giving that to them, but I'm also, um, I'm definitely going to plan to share with students that they may want to either get the hard copy from the library or, I mean, The Color Purple is such a wonderful book. It's been around for so many years, you could certainly get a cheap used copy mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, Barron reports that in most studies in the area, print is superior to digital reading for learning purposes. In some contexts, the research shows little or no difference between digital and print, but in almost no cases did digital reading prove better option for learning. Oh, wow. So in looking at sort of the full body of research, some studies show that digital and print are compatible. Are compatible or comparable. Comparable, exactly. But almost no studies said that digital reading was better, right? And so yes. it's a really interesting question. Um, it, when we're trying to save students money or uh, to be more environmentally conscious or just because sort of we can do fun things with interactive textbooks and technology, that seems to, that is at the price of learning. Mm -hmm. It, this this book and this research is showing. Um, it also says print has the edge not only for learning but also in terms of student preferences. Barron has been one of the scholars surveying students about their reading preferences, and the results were a tremendous surprise to James Lang. Um, if costs were not a factor, 87% of surveyed students said they would prefer to read course assignments in print. Why? Because according to 92% of respondents, they concentrate better when they are reading a physical copy. This is really interesting. Um, obviously, there's been a, a huge push for OER, um, and I don't think it's misplaced because we care about our students and we care about the education of our society, and we don't want barriers in place that stop students from learning or from taking classes or um, from completing or whatever they're doing with this this knowledge. So like that is valid. <laughs> I think that's if the textbook price is going to stop a student from enrolling in a class, that is an issue. And yet at the same time, we know that they're not learning as well as they could be with a print text. Right. Right. And so I think that's so critical to take into consideration. And so um, 
you know, this Naomi Barron, I really appreciate it. She does not dismiss or minimize cost, convenience, and access, mm-hmm. right? And certainly going forward, more and more books are only available as digital sources, right? We uh, remember in the olden days when you would go to the library and you could find bound copies of the journals that you want. We just don't have that anymore, mm-hmm. right? And there are books that our library owns, that our public libraries own, that you can only read as e-books, right? Yes. Um, and so Barron argues if we're going to assign digital reading to students, we need to do a better job of helping them grasp it. Um, reading in print, on screen, and through audio formats are all very different animals, each with its own challenges and capabilities. But most of the reading strategies that strategies that students have been taught in their education, highlighting, annotating a book, taking notes separately, were developed with print text in mind, yes. and they don't always translate to digital reading. Absolutely. And so that is just so, like, I feel like, as we um, move forward um, and are really like, you know, there's been a lot of, I would even use the word pressure at the college level and in particular at our college to try to reduce um, textbook costs. We need to take into consideration that we have to be teaching our students and coaching them and supporting them um, with digital reading. And so Baron writes, digital annotating skills need to be taught and nurtured. Um, and so in this book, Skim Dive Surface, that James Lang talks about here and sort of um, reviews, there are some strategies. Um, and I wanted to share one of them because I thought it was really cool. So... Um, Cohn describes an activity in which students highlighted essential context in a digital text and then made connections between that content and material outside the course. Students are first asked to use a digital annotation tool to highlight passages that A, invite them to ask a question, B, pique their curiosity, and C, remind them of something else they learned in a different class or content, or D, change their understanding of a concept. Students then link each highlighted passage to something outside the text. As they are highlighting and hyperlinking, they are connecting that course material to new context of their own devising. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, as someone who does teach literature and often asks my students to make connections between passages and, you know, uh, other media, things in the world, their own experiences, that this was a really nice way to have them actively engaging with the digital text. Mm-hmm. But we can't assume that they know how to highlight nope. a PDF or a nope. Word document. Nope, we got to teach that. Hyperlinking, that's another story. Yep, yeah. we got to teach it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is time that is taken away from... Um, the content that, that we love to get into our courses, right? So I would, I'm gonna just say the names of those two books again for anyone who's listening because I think um, they're definitely worth a look. I'm definitely going to um, get copies of these 
maybe ask Laura to get a couple copies of them for the department. Laura, if you're interesting, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> um, How We Read Now, Strategic Choices for Print, Screen, and Audio by Naomi S. Barron, B-A-R-O-N, published by Oxford University Press. And then Skim, Dive, Surface, Teaching Digital Reading by Janae Cohn, uh, West Virginia University Press. Excellent. Yes. Thank you for joining co-host Rachel, Ian, and Meg on this episode of Speaking of Teaching. I thought you were talking to us. You're welcome <laughs> for joining. <laughs> we're happy to join. Yep, I know. You're forced. Cut. <laughs> <laughs>